Looking for a way to level up your coaching and win more? Get better fast with GMS Plus. GMS Plus is your on-demand source for the best, most proven volleyball courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. Learn from some of the game's winningest coaches and players, including Heather Olmsted, Keegan Cook, John Spraw, Mike Wall, and Courtney Thompson. I've learned a great deal from Gold Medal Squared, as have many of our guests. Whether you're trying to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will help you get there. And we have a Coach Your Brains Out code for listeners. To get 20% off an annual subscription, go to goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO and enter the code CYBO. That's goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. Today we're excited to talk to Sean Murray, leadership development coach, the host of the Good Life podcast, and the author of the new book, If Gold Is Our Destiny, How a Team of Mavericks Came Together for Olympic Glory. Sean, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Billy. Thanks so much. Well, congratulations on the book. Can you start by telling us uh, your background and why you're interested in telling this particular story? Well, you know, I, I teach leadership for a living. I, I, I'm a leadership development coach. I do organization development and training. And you know, about five years ago, I got a, a gift from my wife. It was a book called The Boys in the Boat. And maybe mm-hmm. some of your listeners are familiar with that book. It's a, it's a book about an Olympic team. It was a 1936 crew team that started as the University of Washington varsity crew team. And they just sort of figured out a way to, to work together, harmonizing this boat. And they started winning. They eventually qualified to represent the United States at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. And they went over there. That was, of course, the Nazi Olympics, right? And they won gold. They beat the, the British boat, which was supposed to be one or two. And they beat the Nazi boat, which I think was supposed to win, or the German boat. So it was an incredible story, totally inspiring. It got me thinking about using a story to teach leadership and is there another team out there that I could really study and really learn how did they do it? And it could be both a way for people to learn about leadership and building a winning culture and be an entertaining story. And of course, the 1980 hockey team is the one that usually comes to mind when people think about that, you know, the miracle on ice, 1980, Lake Placid and beating the Soviets. And it's a great story. There's been movies about it. It's just so well known. And it occurred to me, there's a team, I had a connection to a team, a little remote, but it was my father, Don Murray, who was the team sports psychologist to the 1984 men's Olympic volleyball team. And they competed at the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, which I had tended. I was 13 years old. And I remember the team. There's a lot of great stars in that team. I'm sure many of your listeners remember, of course, Karch Karai is the biggest star that emerged from that team. But he was pretty young at that time. You know, if he eventually, I know some people have called him the Michael Jordan of volleyball or whatever, but if he was, he was sort of the Michael Jordan of just coming out of North Carolina and maybe starting with, uh, with, the, with the Bulls. He wasn't quite the Michael Jordan that had won six world championships yet. Uh, Steve Timmons, Dusty Dvorak, Pat Powers, Craig Buck. I mean, it was just a massive amount of talent. Great, what, what great players, great personalities. And, and so I remember the team. I knew they'd won gold. The other thing I knew about that team is they had been on a three-week outward bound trip. Um, actually, I don't know if I knew it was three weeks at that time. I just had to remember that it was an outward bound 
course. And I thought, okay, there's got to be something there. You know, maybe there's a story around why did they go on this course? How did that impact the team? How did they go? How did they win this gold? And, and so I called up Doug Beal, who I knew through my father. Doug Beal was the head coach of that team. And he had just come off being his stint or his uh, tenure as the executive director of USA Volleyball and had a little more time on his hands and said, yeah. So I started interviewing him and that led to some, he opened up his, his Rolodex, so to speak, and introduced me to some of the players. And I interviewed more, I told him about my, my goal of writing this book. And the, the more I heard about the stories behind this team, the more intrigued I was. And I just really got wrapped up in the story itself. And I, every time I'd come back from an interview, I'd tell my wife, it's like, I can't believe what this team went through. I can't believe the ups and downs and the, the drama. And, and, and maybe every, every uh, road to Olympic gold has some of this, but this one's extra special, I think because of the Outward Bound trip, because before this, the United States men had never medaled in the Olympics. They had never medaled in any international, major international tournament. Uh, they, the previous Olympics they'd been to were the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. I think they finished eighth. And so they, they really hadn't had any success. And to watch a team go from no success to winning a gold medal is, is pretty amazing. And it's not just that it stopped at 84. They, they won, of course, the gold medal in 84. But I think, as, as you guys know, and your listeners probably know, they won uh, the World Cup and the World Championships to what's called the Triple Crown they won those three in a row and then they went on to win gold again in 88. So that's how I got started writing the book. That's been a wonderful journey and it's just a really inspiring story. Yeah. And I, I, I think the book came out great. And I think for fans of volleyball, but also just fans of teams and sport and leadership, it's just a fun way to learn about those topics through, through a great story. So I, I know people, and especially, like I said, people who love volleyball. I'm curious just to go back a step. I, I want to get into the outward uh, bound thing, but, uh, your dad being a sports psychologist in the 1980s, I mean, that, that had to be pretty rare. Was he one of the only one in the country? Or my, my sense is that's more of a modern phenomenon. Yeah, it really is. And it's a little bit of a misnomer to call him a sports psychologist because I guess the real backstory, you got to go back to the early 70s. And what happened was Carl McGowan, and you guys might know Carl, he was uh, a longtime coach at BYU, but also before that, he was the national team coach for a couple of years in the early 70s. And it just so happened that my father was going to graduate school at the University of Oregon with another friend of his named Chuck Johnson and, uh, and Carl McGowan. They all lived together, lived close to, to each other in this complex called married housing because they're all married, they all had kids in, in their mid to late 20s. And my father and Chuck Johnson studied organization development. They studied sort of how, how do organizations organize themselves, um, create the structures, the principles, the values, the culture, whatever, to be high performing. And Carl, of course, was coaching and wanted to coach the national team. And shortly after he graduated, he became the coach. So he called up my father and his partner, Chuck Johnson, he said, will you come in and apply some of these principles some of these organization development principles to my volleyball team? Because I can't get them to, to play together. You know, this was a time when the team was getting pulled together quickly in Southern California every summer. There was no year round program. It was just sort of an all-star team that would try out in LA usually and 
April or May, and then they'd practice for a few weeks, and they'd go to tournaments in Europe, and they would just get beat. And mm -hmm. so it was the organization development principle. So he, he applied them to sports, and he did some work with sports, but he wasn't a true sports psychologist. He always, he always called himself a teen psychologist, and I've mm -hmm. used that at times, but people don't really understand it. So I call him sometimes a sports team psychologist. It was very early on. I mean, yeah. I remember my dad talking about visualization as a key, uh, talking about the mental side of sports, um, how how volleyball players deal with momentum and momentum swings and things like that. So he was dealing with a lot of stuff that sports psychologists are dealing with today, but definitely ahead of his time. It's really cool to hear. And I mean, Carl McGowan's, you know, giant senior volleyball coach. I think most of us think of with him, biomechanics, motor learning, but most of us wouldn't have thought of, you know, in 1976, he's bringing in, you know, on the sports psychologist side. So, I mean, his influence is large, but to hear that side of it is really, really neat to hear about. I mean, obviously he, he just, he really cared about development and he'd do anything. So that's awesome. But yeah, I want to go back to the, uh, the outward bounds experience. Could you take us through what, what it is, what they did and, and uh, yeah, were the players into it doing three weeks of it? Well, the, the sort of backstory on that is in the early eighties, as this, talent emerged. Well, the, the National Training Center was in Dayton, Ohio, up until the qualifier for the 1980 Olympics for Moscow, which the U.S. did not qualify for. So it was not successful. The program was not successful in Dayton. And all the players, most of the players were in Southern California. And so USA Volleyball decided to, if the players aren't going to come to the training center, we're going to move the training center to the players. And they made a very wise decision to move it to San Diego. And so all this talent came on the scene. Um, most of the players at the time had, were playing for UCLA, USC, Pepperdine. Um, I think Paul Sunderland went to Loyola Marymount, as I recall, right? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Chris Marlowe was at San Diego State. So everyone was sort of between San Diego and Santa Barbara. And as this talent came on the scene, they realized they had the talent. It was like, wow, I can't believe, you know, these guys, they grew up playing on the beach. And I think that was a huge advantage. A lot of the players, we can talk about that, but they weren't winning. You know, they went to the 1982 world championships in Argentina and they came in 13th and they had a very tough loss to Bulgaria where they were up 12 to seven in the final fifth and decisive match and then lost, which, which was really tough to take. And then they ended up 13th. And so the wow. coaches said, you know, we need to do something. This team needs to develop cohesion there needs to be resilience we have to be able to overcome believing each other overcome these obstacles when we're down and not get down on each other and and really build trust and and so they were trying to think about how to do that and the idea came up let's let's have a shared significant life experience let's do something together um i think bill neville might have referred to it as a foxhole kind of experience where you you know, you go in and you do something outside of volleyball that would, when you come out of that experience, you feel like, wow, these are my brothers. The, the, I, can, I can do anything with this team and we can overcome whatever is thrown away. So the first idea that was thrown around was actually to take them to boot camp. If you can imagine that, mm. you know, take the team and enroll them in boot camp. There's that main, that big Marine base down there near San mm. Diego. And the Marines said, no, you're not doing that. And so they called up Outward Bound. <laughs> that was just a no-go. So they called up Outward Bound and Outward Bound did take the project on and designed what I consider to be a really um, 
long, arduous, they've described as epic <laughs> course. It was three weeks long and the players did not want to go. I mean, they were really, like, most of the players were against it, not all the players, but most of the players were against it. You know, it was like, how are we going to get better playing volleyball by walking around the snow? It was a winter course. They designed it for the first, like January 7th to the 27th. So right in the, the dead of winter, it's really cold. It was in Utah and, you know, the players didn't want to go there. To their, in their defense around that, I mean, they were traveling a lot. If you go back and look at what the national team did, nothing like the national team today, yeah. as far as travel. I mean, they were together year round and Beal had them going to Cuba in February and, you know, Canada in March. And then he'd go to Europe in April, May, and June. And I mean, he was all over the world. I can't, the, the number of matches is way, way more than the national team today. So um, that was a time for them to be with family, but they weren't going to be with family or friends. They were going to go on this three week course. And so that was the objective behind it. There was a lot of reticence going into it, a lot of resistance and um, players tried to get out of it and only one player did and his name's Karch Karai. <laughs> <laughs> he was too young. He's still in school, right? He was still in school yeah. and he was a pre-med major and there were certain prerequisites and I think the coaches felt like there was enough of an argument or basis for to let Karch stay and finish and get his med degree and or get his pre-med degree. He didn't end up going to medical school as probably most of you know, but he was on that track. And uh, so Karch didn't go. That was a little a bit of a sticky situation too, because a lot of the players didn't really find out till right before. And um, they, they, they got in a plane in San Diego, they flew to Colorado and then drove a bus down to Monticello, Utah. And they got out and, found out they were, they were gonna have 70 pound packs. They took snowshoes. It was about four feet of snow in the, where they stopped, the bus stopped, and they learned how to get their snowshoes on. Everything that they needed for the next, I'd say about 12 days was in their backpacks, all their food, tents, sleeping bags. And they started, they met their instructors and they started up um, a pretty steep pass in the Abajo Mountains. And they ended up traversing the mountains, uh, going up to 11,000 feet. The weather was really cold. I went back and looked at the weather records and one night it did get to five degrees. Uh, so this was not, you know, fun, having fun out in the uh, outdoors camping. This was sort of survival. And one thing they learned was they had to work together to survive. I think that was one of the key lessons. As much as they didn't want to be there every night when they got to their campsite, somebody had to clear out the snow to put the tents. Someone had to put the tents up. Someone had to gather firewood to start a fire while someone was preparing the stove and cooking. And it was to get, they did it together. Between campsites, they broke trail. Someone had to be out front. The first push person out front was breaking trail, was pushing down more snow and made it easier for those behind. And they took turns, right? And they, each person had to rotate and they did it together. And over time, if you read the trip reports from the outward bound instructors, they have notes in there about, you know, at first the players didn't want to talk about cohesion, trust, working together, the mental side of the game. But over time, they started to talk about it. And that's why they designed the course to be three weeks. Because so they thought if it was just four days or five days, they would just kind of tough it out, get through it, whatever, I, whatever it takes to stay on this team and go to the Olympics. But three weeks was long enough where 
And a lot of these issues did surface. A lot of things came out and discussions happened and conversations and, and, and they learned how to become a team. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, I was going to ask, like, what are the big takeaways? You've mentioned a couple. So I guess um, for coaches listening that might want to design their own program um, to kind of build some team building, what are, what are these kind of things? Um, what do you suggest for them and what can they look to get out of it? Like what does marching through the snow have to do with volleyball? I think the, the important thing is that the players on your team respect one another and see each other for the value that they provide, not just on the court, but as a, as a human being and as a, as a teammate, you know, as a colleague, you don't have to be best friends, but I think on a winning team, like the, the kind of team that we're talking about here, the 84 team that became the best in the world, everyone has to know and respect the role that that person plays on the team. And so if you can design experiences that get people out of the gym, get them out of the regular um, you know, day-to-day of volleyball and allow your players to see each other for who they are. And often you have to get them out of volleyball because there's a certain pecking order that develops on any athletic team. You know, there's always the best players and the starters and the people who are the second team. And you got to kind of break that down a little bit because on a winning team, it's about team. You got to put the team above yourself. And that helps you do it. So whether it's going out and uh, sharing a meal together in some way, you know, playing some paintball, going bowling, doing something, you know, anything that gets you out of that routine and allows people to develop those relationships and see each other outside of volleyball, I think is helpful. And it starts to build trust. Trust is the big key. Yeah, you mentioned that like the team wasn't made of best friends. Is that an important component? Or can you, you said just is trust and respect what comes in? Like, how do you be successful if you're not all buddies? Yeah, I was surprised that there weren't more friendships on this team. Um, I didn't really, like I said, I didn't know much about the team. I went to research it. There are some really good friends on this team. And, you know, one that could, two that come to mind are Karch Karai and Steve Timmons and their kind of lifelong friendship. And I'm, I'm sure there's others, but I also know that there was, um, players on the team that weren't, you know, it wasn't like they all wanted to hang out together after practice and everything. Some did, some did, and then they were little groups. But so I don't think friendship, so to speak, or best friendship is, is what's so important as respect and understanding of the role that you play and acceptance of that role and um, believing in each other and how you treat each other when things go well and when things don't go well. I think those are the keys to having a winning culture. And, and, and by the way, on that last point, how you treat each other when a mistake is made, that's something that this team really worked on. And they had sessions where they would talk about, well, what are we gonna do when someone makes a mistake? When I've noticed today in volleyball, everyone comes together after a point, whether it's a, a score or not. That wasn't always the case back then. I went back and looked at some of the video and, and in talking to some of the players, they would say things like, well, what doesn't help is, it, is you get a dirty look from another player, right? Or that kind of stare, or we stop, we stop having eye contact. What we should be doing is saying, that's okay, Waldy, you're gonna get it next time. Or it's okay, Red, 
you've got this. You know, we, they, they actually had to talk about that stuff. And maybe that's just built into the volleyball culture today, but it really wasn't back then. They had to kind of figure out how do we lift each other up so that when we are up by 12-7 against Bulgaria and we start losing, that we can stop that, right? And, and get the two points we need to win or three points. Yeah, you mentioned before that in the past they were a team of all stars uh, kind of came together. Can you talk about the difference between talent and commitment and why that commitment component was so important? Yeah, and this is something that I think Doug Beal had a big impact on because Doug installed a lot of rules, you might say. He had he, he there was certain structure that he placed into the program. And he put it there because he felt like it needed structure and the players needed to be committed and in the gym and devoted to indoor volleyball if they wanted to win an indoor medal in 1984. Now, a lot of these players grew up on the beach playing and they were quite successful, Karch being one of them, having won, I think, a couple of Manhattan Opens before um, the 84 Olympics. And... Sinjin Smith was around the was in the program, kind of in now the program. He'd won a Manhattan Open, maybe two, I can't remember. Um, some other players, Hovland and others, that were really, really good. But they also wanted to play on the beach. And and so so Doug Beal sort of put an ultimatum down. Are you committed to the team or or not? And if, if you want to go play in Europe, that's fine, but you can't come back and expect to be on this team. Or if you want to go play in the beach tournaments, you're free to do that, but you might not have a place on this team. And there was a real worry that some of these players were so good that the U.S. would not be able to win without them. That you can't just tell these players they can't come back on the team. I mean, this we only have so much talent in the U.S. and we have the Olympics coming to our soil. There was a lot of pressure on Doug Beal to let some of these better players kind of come and go. And he he decided to stick with the commitment and say, no, you gotta be committed. So some of these players ended up not on the team. And this, the amazing thing is the team got better. That, that's what really kind of blew me away as I was researching. And so I tried to figure, I was asking the coaches and asking the players. And one of the things that happened was a guy like Steve Timmons all of a sudden has more space, more opportunity to grow and develop. And Steve was committed to the team. He, said he was going to do whatever it takes to get to the Olympics. And he almost didn't make it because he was left off the team a year before. Uh, he was sent down kind of the college team for a while. And he was committed. So I, I believe that commitment, when you, at a certain level, when you've got the talent, what you really need is the commitment to the team's success over individual success. And that's, that's a really important component to um, – to having the kind of success that this team had. That was a, a bold move by Doug, and obviously it, it paid off. But anybody who knows Doug Beal now, which most people in volleyball do, it's worth getting the book just to see some of the pictures of him in the 70s with his Fu Manchu and the hair and the glasses. It, it's quite a scene. I, I, it, it cracks me up. Um, and it kind of relates to this question. Uh, he has a quote. He said, we weren't afraid to look foolish which he literally wasn't. Um, but uh, yeah, why, why is this an important skill more seriously for leadership and winning? Well, I love that quote by Doug Beal. We, we weren't afraid to look foolish. And I, 
I think he and the coaching staff realized that they needed to do some different things. They needed to try different things to win, that they weren't going to necessarily just copy their way to greatness. And by that, I mean, at the time, and I think every program does this, that's maybe in the teens, national, internationally ranked in the teens or not quite at the elite level. And you're looking at the top five teams in the world. You're saying, okay, how do we get there? Let's look at what these top teams are doing. That's exactly what Doug Beal and Tony Crabb was another assistant there on his staff and Bill Neville. They looked at a Soviet program, which was very successful, having won the gold at 1980. And I think all the world championships since the 76 Olympics, right up to the 84 Olympics. So they looked at that program. It, they just didn't have the players to emulate what the Soviets were doing. It didn't have the same body style as it was described to me. Like the Soviets were pretty big. They were tall. They, they were great at blocking. The Americans were more agile. They were, they were smaller, faster, quicker, very creative. Uh, Dusty Dvorak was just like a supreme talent. Um, I probably haven't talked enough about him because he was the best, probably the best in the world at setting at that time is what my understanding. So uh, they, they had to figure out, you know, how to make it work with their, with their team. You know, they went to the Japanese and the Japanese style wouldn't work. And there's a, another quote I, I sort of liked from the book because they were talking to the Japanese coach, Matsudera. And they said, why do you share all of your secrets about your, your program? You know, I mean, you, you share all these videos and how you train and everything when it's, you're just teaching your competition. And he said, well, you know, only the Japanese can play like the Japanese. And I thought that was really insightful in that he was saying they designed a system that works for their culture, for their players, and it maximizes the potential for Japan. So the light bulb sort of went off for Beal was like, okay, we've got to maximize the potential for our program. You know, we've got these beach players. They do things a little differently. I was talking to Steve Timmons and he was describing how he learned to jump on the beach. He would jump to goofy foot. He didn't jump off the same foot everyone else did. And, had, you know, there was all these hmm. interesting and it had certain advantages, but he had to learn how to do it the other way. But, you know, the, the bottom line is that Doug had to try something different. He did have to work a little foolish. He had to put some things out there that people in the volleyball circles thought, well, what are you doing? One of them is having two people be a serve receive instead of four. You know, primarily at that time it was four, mm -hmm. sometimes three, but never two. And they decided to roll out two, two. It was the same two every time. It was Karch Karai and Aldous Berzins. And there's all these advantages to that but it, but again he'll he had, he had to look a little foolish because they at first it, it didn't work and people thought well what are you doing just like when the players who were really talented left the program a lot of people really questioned doug beal and in fact there was a little kind of an insurrection there were some parents and people that wanted to get doug off the, out of the program and get al skates in the program and uh that didn't happen but that's how close to the edge probably doug was <laughs> was flying when he was trying these things. Well, so it seems like experimentation, exploration were important values to discovering who they were and especially taking advantage of whatever strengths they did have. Uh, the the two-person service Eve example is great. Do you know of any others, maybe failed attempts or other, other experimentation, uh, yeah. other successful experimentation they did? Well, on the, on the failure side, um, 
there's a story in the book that Bill Neville tells around some of the things he used to try and practice because Bill was the kind of guy whose brain was always going and he'd write things down, you know, notepad next to his bed. And one night, it, you know, they had to get better at blocking because the Soviets were just so good at blocking and the U.S. Was, wasn't a strength. And so he thought, I'm going to design a drill that's going to improve how we block. And he thought it hit him. Like he wrote it down as soon as it came to him. He said it was the idea was that he would allow the offense in practice. I think it was to have seven hits instead of three before they went over, before they could hit. I mean, he figured that they would move it around close to the net and everyone would have to block, you know, try different things. And he rolls it out there in practice and he tells them, okay, boys, we're going to do this. And, and they start doing it. And it, it was terrible. Like he said, it, 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 it didn't help blocking at all. In fact, it made it worse because they never really had a chance to block because the ball was always bouncing around. And when they did, it was, they were too tired by the time, you know, and he just, said, who designed this? This is crap. I can't believe you even tried this. You know, everyone's laughing. And then he went on to the next thing. And he, and he told me the story in the context of, we did that stuff. We would just try. And the, the trust was there. And I think the trust was there partly because of outward bound, maybe not hundred percent, but there, whatever it was, they did, had done things to develop the trust so that the players would follow Neville and, and Beal wherever they decided to go. And the other thing about trying and the experimentation is no one really takes credit for developing this American style. You know, they all say that it happened collaboratively, that it was a sort of trial and error experimentation. We would do things in practice and someone would say, well, what if I stand over here? Or what if I try this? And, you know, another example of it working was what they called the swing offense. And I don't know if you guys know, I don't, I don't know how it's evolved since then, but the way they just described it was that with the two serve receive, Karch being one of them and also being a really good hitter, after he received the serve and passed it to Dusty, he then kind of became an offensive weapon where he could swing around from the other side and then hit. And then that would give Dusty another option. And they started to realize that swinging guys around from the, from the back row, especially with Steve Timmons, all of a sudden really getting his timing down from the back row and being able to hit from the back row allowed them to, you know, have a lot more weapons coming at the net. And then the other thing they added to that was an audible. So before Dusty as the setter would sort of call the play as the pass was coming in, but what they did is Dusty would call the play, but then Steve Timmons might call his route to the net. And he had several variations and, and Karch might call his route and another player. So he, Dusty would, would immediately hear like three things like, like pipe, red, you know, center or something like that. And he, then he knew where those players were going. And then he, he would put it based on the defense where it should be. And he was really good at putting the ball where it should be. So those are just two examples. Yeah, it's really cool. It's cool to hear that with maybe the failed experiments that the leadership wasn't just blaming the players, but they're kind of laughing it off or taking the blame themselves. <laughs> Um, so the coaching staff also had their differences. Um, how did they come together and make it work? And what suggestions do you have for coaches out there that are, you know, working with other coaches that might not agree on everything? Yeah, I think there were three different personalities. There was Doug Beal, who's the former national team player. And, you know, he was sort of emotionally 
aloof from, I don't know if aloof is the right word, but he was distanced, emotionally distanced from the players because he knew he, he was going to have to cut them, a, a certain number of them eventually to get down to 12. And he didn't want to be emotionally clouded by that decision. And so he kept his emotional distance and kind of came across as a very stern, strict coach, not a warm, fuzzy coach, not a coach that really went over the, the, the hearts of the players and so to speak. But then there was, because he had Bill Neville there, who was very much a player's coach and Bill's job was to build those relationships. And he was very good at that. So he, he was really beloved by the players. And when I interviewed the players, they all wanted to tell me Bill Neville stories and what they called Nevilleisms, which were some of his crazy sayings. And, and together, I think they worked. And, and they also disagreed a lot, but they, they worked it out. Like they had different opinions about how to, and Tony Crabb too, about how to win against a match against a certain team. And they were all willing to share those opinions and get them out there. And then they'd somehow come to maybe maybe Doug would be the final decider, you know, arbiter, but they were all willing to share their opinions. And I think that's a good sign for any leadership group that you get people to share their honest opinion and that's how you get the best decision. And, but especially I think Doug and Bill complemented each other around the culture and the relationships with the players. And I've noticed that they've been very successful uh, coaching together, you know, that the two of them together have had a lot of success. And I think that speaks to the fact that they, were, they really work well, they complement each other. Yeah, so just because I'm lacking in one area, you know, doesn't mean we're gonna be a poor team if, if I can bring in the right person to, to make up for another area. And it's cool that they were able to, you know, use each other's strengths and complement each other. Yeah. So, um, one more about just their getting inside their practices. Um, could you take us through what what the practice was like for the, especially as they're getting closer and forming this team uh, later into the 1980s or 1983, 84? Yeah. Um, I don't know a lot about the how they you know each hour of the practice went. I do know that they practiced from eight till noon every day. They had four hours of practice, and then they had weightlifting and some other things afterwards. I also know that. Um, that there was a lot of uh, Neville would work what he called coach on ones where he would take players aside and really work on different skills. And Neville was really good at that. Um, I, I also, as far as there was something else about practice. Uh, anyway, I don't, I wish I knew more about how they ran the practice, but I didn't, that's not something that I really learned a lot about. I remember in the, the virtual meeting, Aldous, I think was saying, he really loved practice and it was just super competitive. Yeah, no, that, I'm glad you said that because I, I do remember now Chris Marlowe, who was eventually became the team captain. Chris was sort of the, for a long time, sort of, I'd say the captain of the second team because Chris was behind Dusty Dvorak. Dvorak was, was far and away the best setter on the team and everybody knew that. And so Dusty was the number one setter. There was two setters behind him, Rod Wild and Chris Marlowe. And so Chris spent a lot of time on the second team. And what Chris told me was the second team, it was very, very competitive. That's right. They, they do a lot of competition in practice. And the second team really made 
the first team better because they were so competitive. And one thing about Chris, he seemed to have this ability to make everybody around him play better and want to win. And so he brought that kind of special magic to the second team, which I think sort of ended up rubbing the first team the wrong way because it's like we can't beat the, you know you should be able to beat the second team and i think marlo oftentimes he got this the second squad to to really be competitive in a way that was like I keep, it actually kind of came together at one point right before the olympics in pullman where some of those fault lines really got exposed and uh and the, they, the competition maybe spilled over to something beyond what you want in an inter-squad competition but they pulled it together before the olympics